Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Hello, this is Chris Waddell, and welcome to Living It. I am with Jack Carr today. Jack Carr, best-selling author, has three novels out there. We're going to talk about those, but most, the, the, the last time I saw you, we had just driven bobsleds on the Olympic Park in Park City. You were worried then because your book was coming out and there was a launch. We're going to get to the bobsled part later on. But maybe we'll talk about the book launch first because last I saw you, you were saying, well, this does not seem like the optimal time to <laughs> yeah, launch so, a book. What happened? Because it seems like it worked out well. Yeah, it was a suboptimal time to launch anything. But uh, yeah, we last saw each other. I mean, I was, we were on that bobsled track and I got the text or the call saying that the schools are now shut down for the kids for the rest of the year. Or I think then it might have been, oh, we're just taking a three-week break to see what happens. Sure. And then that turned into the rest of the year. And now we're thinking about the fall um, and waiting for a word on that. But uh, yeah, that was the, kind of the last time that any of us were together without masks, you know, without being, you know, totally just uh, completely consumed by uh, by the COVID-19 situation. But, uh, but yeah, it was a suboptimal time in that I think so the book came out on April 14th which was a Tuesday and that week of um, of April and this 3rd, was a month prior that we were together we were together yeah. the 13th of March yeah crazy and then it was like like while we were there it was kind of like that's when things started shutting down we had our last beers in a public place you know well, people weren't worried you know and all that it was just crazy at the end of the day but uh, that's the last time I think I was really out in the public in a place like that. But uh, yeah, the book, the Monday was the 13th of April. Uh, Tuesday, the book came out, the 14th. But that was like the height of uncertainty, I would say, as far as COVID went. Because uh, we were just getting into it. We hadn't started to really take a breath and look at numbers, look at the world and kind of uh, open aperture a little bit. That was the one like uncertainty wise, probably the worst time to launch anything. And that we didn't know, you know, can you go to the store next week? Are there, is there going to be meat on the shelves? Are there going to be any vegetables there? And all the canned goods going to be gone. Wait a sec, am I going to have to get like some water soon for my house? Like people are thinking those things. They're thinking health, then they're thinking business, then they're thinking savings. And just as far as uncertainty went, <laughs> that was the week. So it's not like Simon and Schuster could have looked back and say like, oh, in the pandemic of 89, this is what we did. And this is how we adapted. Like, no, there was, there's nothing. No one knew how launching anything. I'm not going back to the Spanish flu in 1918 yeah, exactly. to 20. We don't have data from back then. Uh, so it just didn't know what was going to happen. And so I really looked at it and I was already looking at it when we were last together uh, in anticipation of not being able to do an in-person book tour, not being able to do the local media that goes along with that. So you, like when you land in Dallas or something on a book tour, then it's, as you know, then it's off to do local media to promote the book and also the event that's going on at the bookstore that night or the next day or whatever it may be. So all that's gone. All those 10 cities, I was starting at the Reagan Library. I had one stop that had like five different um, different signings in Nashville for, it was just some private events, like all this woven in together, all this local media across the country, all set, ready to go. And then, no book tour. So that's a big hit, but in anticipation of that and looking 
at the changing conditions and trying to anticipate where they were going, looking at worst case scenarios, and then looking at, hey, what do I have on the table here? Like what cards have I been dealt here? And uh, what do I have in my toolkit? And how can I best adapt to this changing environment? And so for me, it uh, was really a 180 shift, like meaning, okay, nothing in person, all virtual. How can I still do a few book signings? Who, who, as far as independent bookstores are set up to do that um, and have some reach and have some people that will actually tune in? Um, how do I, how do I do book set signings? up? Meaning that you were doing virtual signings for independent bookstores. Yep. So like this, right? Like we're doing here, except they have uh, an audience that, uh, that either watches on Facebook sometimes because okay. they can't go to the in-person store event. So they're already set up for that at, uh, a little bit. Uh, so leveraging those, looking to other industry or not other industries, but other businesses that are also adapting, like speaking um, mm -hmm. bureaus, because they can't now do anything in person. So they have to adapt quickly too. So doing a couple with them where I sign books virtually and, uh, and then they ship them, they, they ship them to them and they ship them off to people. And so you're uh, just uh, sitting there, you're on camera signing a book to, to John Smith putting it in the, in the envelope and here you go, it's going out tomorrow or going out later today and you'll get kind it of. in two days. Is that kind of. really what happens is they send you a bunch of books beforehand, you sign them all and then you have a few around you during the, the virtual signing because you're talking, you're answering questions. Sometimes there's a mediator, sometimes there's not, sometimes you're just talking to a blank screen and there's some questions that pop up on the side. So each one's a little bit different, which also means you need to troubleshoot uh, ahead of time sure. uh, because last time your mic was turned on for, for zoom or for whatever else. And now you're on your platform. And so it's, it's a scramble, but uh, point being it was time to adapt. And uh, I think I was fairly well situated as far as authors go, particularly a new author to uh, reach out to friends in industry that could, that wanted to help launch this book because we've known each other for so long. Uh, a lot of them, their products are mentioned in the book. We just have this personal relationship where we help help one another. So uh, a lot of those, uh, the gear in the book, we did some giveaways with, uh, with the gear and with books and different missions that you could do. So there's like seven different missions that people could do to win these gear bundles from, uh, from different companies uh, and sign copies of the book. And then I really wanted to help independent bookstores because I want to make sure that I, launched in a way that was appropriate to the times, meaning that uh, independent bookstores were hurting, there's no traffic coming in there, and they're adapting as well, trying to figure out how do we survive this? Uh, can we stay in business and can we do home deliveries in our local area? Can we still ship just like Amazon? How do we get the word out to people that, hey, you don't have to go to Amazon for a book, you can call us, you can get on our website and we'll ship right from here, uh, that sort of thing. So I did some signing campaigns where you could only get this uh, limited edition uh, book plate for Savage Sun at these independent bookstores that wanted to participate. So, Can you describe what a book plate is? A book plate, I don't have one right here because they're in the other room, but it's like a, a thing, that, like a sticker that has something on it. Typically it doesn't have like a graphic on it, it has something very minimal, but I did one that had something pretty cool on there, be an arrowhead, it's kind of like this one on my shirt. Uh, and uh, then I signed all those and sent them to these, uh, these bookstores across the country. And then they could let their audience know, I could let my audience know, I could direct people towards them and then incorporate it into one of these missions where if you found one and got one and took a picture of it and uh, tagged the independent bookstore where you got it, then you could win this gear bundle type thing. So it's, uh, so you gotta get creative. It was all about uh, adapting and, uh, and being creative. And it, uh, it worked out because it uh, made the New York Times list. So that was pretty cool. And, and that was the first time you'd made the New York Times yeah. list. 
Yeah, this is the third book and uh, first time making the list. And I was hoping in the lead up that I would go on Joe Rogan. And I was hoping that I would go on a big morning news show like a, a Fox and Friends type thing. Or that uh, Chris Pratt would hold up the book because he's doing a series on Amazon based on the first book and say, oh, I love this. None of those things happened in the lead up to publication. Uh, and those were the big ones. So, uh, and now looking back, I'm really glad that they didn't because it made the New York Times list and no one can say, hey, it's just because Rogan put you on or just because you were on Fox and Friends or just because Chris Pratt held up the book. That's the only reason you made it. Well, none of those things happened and, and it made the list. So it was really a grassroots word of mouth effort from, from readers, uh, from hunters, from tactical shooters, from people that uh, maybe have one follower or some that have a lot more than that, from companies that I have personal relationships with, but still grassroots, modern word of mouth. Uh, a lot of it was podcasts like this one, uh, just getting being able to have a conversation and get a hit, hitting that audience. And so all modern day word of mouth. And so that's, that's something I think is pretty special. That's pretty amazing, really, because oftentimes you think of an author as somebody who is in their little writer's garret and just uh, they're locked away and just just pumping it out and and making it happen. And and it's some of how the world has changed, right? That that you can't really just do that. Part of part of people wanting to read your stuff is to know you and go, hey, I like that guy. I like his stuff. But the interesting part also is with the companies that you've created your allegiances. And so, so that's, it, it's a much bigger team. Yeah, no, absolutely. What, who are some of those companies that you've worked with? Yeah, so it was, uh, and, and I started going to this thing called SHOT Show back in, I think 2003 was my first one. It was an industry show where they highlight all the, or they bring all this new gear and weapons, that sort of thing. Because I wanted my guys to go downrange in the SEAL teams with uh, the best gear you possibly could. And a lot of times the private sector is well ahead of the government as far as procurement uh, and, uh, and technology and that sort of thing. So I started going to, these, to this show in Vegas every year and it was pretty small in 2003. And, and it just grew over the years. Now it's this huge thing and I continue to go. I only missed uh, them for deployments, uh, sometimes for a training deal we were in and couldn't get out of. But, uh, but I went to these shows and I got to know a lot of the people in these companies that were building gear for us. Uh, started giving them uh, some advice on how to change it up a little bit that might work better, what we're doing once we get it, how we're modifying it for our kit before we go downrange. Uh, so I just just relationships naturally developed. So when I got out of the, of the military, it was very natural for me being a gear guy before the military, gear guy in the military and gear guy today, uh, to weave those things into the pages of my novels, almost as character development tools. I uh, bring conversations between guys that like, like Land Cruisers versus uh, like Defender 110s, Land Rovers, nine uh, millimeters versus 45, Kydex holster versus, uh, versus leather that sort of thing. So I, I always, I weave those in because the way someone, what someone carries, the kind of gear they, they carry, how they carry, it tells me a lot about them. It tells me a story. And so I use that in my novels. So it was very natural for me to then reach out to these companies and say, Hey, you guys want to want to do something for the launch of this book? And they all stepped up and everybody wanted to do something. So Gator sunglasses, uh, San Diego, I started wearing them in 1998. I found them in a little Harley shop down in, uh, I think in Chula Vista, California. Um, uh, Sig 
firearms, PSE, archery, um, Sitka gear, who, uh, who makes like hunting technical clothing, um, Aimpoint that does sights for, uh, for our weapons, uh, that sort of thing. So uh, Winkler knives, so just all these people that I knew that built this gear, uh, all wanted to be involved in the launch of the book. So they, uh, we all got together and launched these different missions and they put, put it up on their site. So you couldn't have done this in the mid eighties, couldn't have done this in the mid nineties. There was a pandemic, and you were solely relying on a book tour and local media to promote your book. Like these weren't options, but today they're options. So, uh, so really, I just had to had to adapt and, and get this thing out there using the essentially the new media. Well, I mean, and and your what your bookmark says uh, never tell me the odds, right? So right. that's right. I'm assuming that's a credo for you. That's but, right. It, that that's something i mean that's something that's kind of cool in your books too is that reading your books you know because i mean to, to the lay person and i qualify as the lay person i'm thinking okay well these guys are giving him whatever and he's using whatever you know we, we don't know necessarily that you have a choice to say oh i'm going to i'm going to use this i'm going to use that i'm going to use something else uh you know, I mean that that's that's something that's kind of cool, and certainly you're you're wearing your your logoed hat as well with the with the tomahawks, yeah. and and, re, and reading your stuff, I'm going really. So this is so this is something they're using, and and I had to go back and do a little bit of research with you know some guys some some uh, some ranger was talking about yeah no I'd never I'd never bring a tomahawk with me, and another guy's like oh god yeah no this is this is perfect this is the best thing, but it's a it's an interesting weapon too, right? As we're getting so technical and it's almost, you know, like I remember watching the news at one point and they were talking about, I think it was back, you know, in, in desert storm or something. And they were saying that, that a lot of these people who are, who are dropping bombs and stuff like that are really proficient at it because they've been playing video games. Crazy. And this has prepared them. And, but what a distance there is from dropping a bomb, but then, with a tomahawk, there yeah. is there is no distance at all. I mean, this is this is personal and this is intimate, and 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 you write about that. And is that is that something that what 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 is it what does it mean to you? Why that why the tomahawk? Yeah, so it's in all three novels, and I wanted something that it was very primal, uh, very visceral, that kind of tied uh, the ancient tradition of the warrior to the modern day. So I have my protagonist proficient in all those and a student of warfare. Uh, and I, I describe in the first novel, the books in, on his bookshelves, when a police officer comes into his house and is looking at this crime scene early on in the first novel, and they're books that are actually on, on my shelves here. Um, so it's a, it's a very, it's a very personal writing experience when I sit down to, to do this, but I've always been fascinated with the Tomahawk since I was a little kid. Uh, and well before September 11th, I was, uh, I was looking and I had, uh, Tomahawks for like a more modern one, even, even pre September 11th. And then an old one that paid tribute to Rogers Rangers from where we get the, uh, the Ranger Creed from. And, uh, it's, uh, it's just a weapon that, that, uh, when you see it, it's just, it brings out emotions in you because we're, we're all tied to our past. Like we're only here today because we had ancestors somewhere along the line uh, that were good at fighting and hunting. Like that's why we are here. If they were not, then we would not be here today. And uh, we're only here, this modern era that we live in is just a, such a small sliver of, uh, uh, of history in general that, uh, that for most of that history, most of human history, uh, you had to be good at those things. So I think whether readers know it or not, 
they read that and for some reason it hits something primal in them, something resonates there. And then when I tie in the feelings and emotions behind things I was involved with downrange and apply that to the fictional narrative, um, then it really resonates with them. And I think that's why uh, Simon & Schuster picked it because it stood out from the thousands of other books that they saw that year. And uh, I really think that's what did it. I think you're right because that was the thing that, that came to me where you were talking about the mentality of, of being a SEAL or being a sniper, being in a position where you have to, to take the life of an enemy and getting into the head of, of that person, of that warrior. I'd never, I'd never heard that before. You know, I'd never, I mean, I, I certainly have not read as widely in the genre as you have, but between books and novel or books and movies, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that. And can you, can you tell the audience sort of, sort of, I mean, it's uh, how you, how, I mean, is it making peace with it? Is it, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to cloud your, your answer, but, but how do you, how do you tell the story? Yeah, no, actually do it, especially in that, uh, in that first one, when he comes back from a very uh, violent encounter uh, in the first book in Mexico and comes back to the, the States and is reflecting a little bit on what he'd just done as part of his journey of, of revenge in that, that first novel. But uh, when I sat down to write the first one, I thought this is just going to be a great escape for people. They're going to get it from Hudson News as they walk through the airport, read it on the plane, read it on the beach, wherever they're going for vacation. And as soon as I started writing, I realized that it was going to be a much more personal experience. And that's what was going to differentiate these books from the others that were out there. Like as soon as I sat down, like it was clearly evident. Um, so I take those, so it's not me interviewing a sniper and saying, hey, what was it like in Ramadi 06 at the height of the war and then taking notes and then applying whatever filters I have, past experience I have uh, to it and then morphing it and putting it on a page that's fiction. Um, so there aren't all those those barriers and, and filters and uh, biases and whatever else. It's just me reflecting on experiences that I had and then taking the emotions behind those and putting them into this fictional narrative. So uh, so there's there's less filters in the way, if that makes sense. And uh, and so so for so it's it's not me interviewing someone and then processing it and then applying it and having lost a lot in translation. No, it's a, it's a direct translation of those feelings to a fictional narrative. So that's, uh, I think that, that definitely makes it stand out. It, it definitely does. And it's the, it's, but, but it's the thing that making peace with, with what you have to do with, with your job. That is the thing that was so, that was so distinctive to me, the, the idea of eradicating evil. And, and I've, I've never been in the military. I've never, you know, I mean, in some ways you, you, you talk about the gun thing and, and all that. And, and for me, I'm in a position where I would not want to introduce a gun to a situation because more than likely it would be used on me because I wouldn't have that because I might have that moment of, of thinking, okay, is this right? Is it, is it not right? And I think that that's, that's one of the hard things to know is, is when things are right. And when things when things aren't aren't right, and obviously you've done a lot of preparation to get to that point, but getting into but you're still you're still a human, and 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 sort of justifying the human side with the with the with the occupation side, to me was something that was really very interesting. Uh, very therapeutic process in that. Um, 
you know, I was very fortunate downrange and that the decisions I made worked out for, for whatever reason. But, uh, but still, uh, war is very transformative. Uh, combat is, uh, is, is very emotional experience. And uh, being able to channel that in a way that, that moves your life forward um, and hopefully makes you a better, uh, better citizen, better husband, better father, and in this case, a better author. Um, I think there's something very therapeutic about that, using that past experience, using that foundation um, as a way to move forward in a positive way. Uh, and it's not that I lived back there in those 20 years that I was in the SEAL teams or those months I was in Iraq or, well, years I was in Iraq, uh, that sort of thing. It's, uh, it's not that at all. It's using that as a foundation in a positive way going forward. So, uh, so I think it's, uh, yeah, so for me, it was a very therapeutic way to, uh, to kind of link to my past, but have it be the foundation upon which I build the future. And, and so it's, it's what you've experienced, but at the same time, it's, it's the foundation of, of who you've become, I guess, in some ways, the, the preparation for what you're doing. I mean, one of the, one of the things at, at Bud's, right, that's, it says uh, the only easy day was yesterday, right? Right. That's right. Done your homework. And the thing is, you're, you're looking at this. I still and, feel like that. I still feel like that now. <laughs> well, that's, that's the question really is does that become who you are and was that was that who you were before you became a seal is it who you are coming forward is it honoring the work that you've done or or is it just the right way to approach life in general yeah i can't remember ever uh it's this natural part of me so it wasn't like i was uh, someone else before the military and I was someone else after I left the military. And, and now I think of things as far as the only easy day was yesterday or, Hey, we have to be prepared. No, I was that way my whole life. Uh, I was drawn to the military, drawn to the outdoors, drawn to being prepared, uh, wanting to be able to protect myself and my family. Uh, so all those things were very natural, uh, at a very, very early age. I don't ever remember being anything else. Um, of course, in, in the military, it helps to <laughs> be prepared. Uh, and, and the only easy day was yesterday is a, is a great saying. It's right there on our grinder at, that, uh, at Bud's. You see it every day. Uh, and then once you get to some of the SEAL teams, like SEAL Team 2 has one of a similar type plaque right there you see every day. It says, earn your trident every day. Um, and you know, that means that how are you going to make yourself a better SEAL today? Because by you making yourself a better SEAL, a better operator, uh, you're pushing your teammates to also be better operators and you're making the organization stronger as a whole. So yeah, for me, it was just, I've always been this way. I've always wanted to be prepared. I've always wanted to learn those survival skills. Um, always, it's just been something I thought was, I just don't know another way to do it. And uh, also when I go in on something, I go all in. Uh, so uh, much to my wife's uh, dismay um, that uh, right now I'm all in on writing. And this is a, essentially a startup. And like you said earlier, I thought it was just writing. I thought you just went to the mountain, <laughs> your cabin and you typed away and then you sent it to New York. Maybe you did a little editing and then you went to the next project. I had no idea that everything you'd have to do if you were starting any small business, you have to do as an author today. I mean, you don't have to, you can rely on your publisher for all these things. Sure. But the way I looked at it was that, Hey, my publisher, Simon Schuster gave me my break. They, uh, they took a risk on me. They invested in me and I don't, uh, I owe them my all to make this thing a success. They don't owe me anything. They gave me that break. So for me, it's, uh, it's, a, it's been a, I've learned a lot, that's for sure. Uh, but very early on I was like, okay, 
this is a business, this is a startup, just like I'm starting some computer company or coffee shop or gym or whatever it might be. And I have to do, I have to learn about uh, marketing and branding and co-branding and, and budgets and advertising and uh, social media uh, engagement and everything else you would have to do for any business I need to do to build this readership. So that's, uh, so I went all in on that, uh, which I didn't expect at the outset. And I don't think, uh, <laughs> I don't think my wife did either. Did, so when you first started, you used sort of the John Grisham model, as I understand it, right? That he did uh, a, a, time, a Time to Kill, is that the yep. name of the first yep. one? And then, then he did The Firm and That's blew right. up with The Firm and people went back and, and read A Time to Kill. I actually think that I read A Time to Kill first and, oh, wow. nice. and was so intrigued. Well, I was so intrigued. I don't know where I got it, but I, but I picked it up and, and was intrigued by the story beforehand where he just, he just started writing and, and then said, oh, well, this isn't any good. And his wife was like, hey, uh, are, are you still writing that? Like, you've got to finish that. Like, I really like that. And I want to I find out what's going on here. Nice. I didn't know that part of it. I, the way I looked at it was uh, I knew he wrote A Time to Kill first and couldn't give it away. And uh, he could have stopped right there. So I looked at it more from the perspective of uh, yeah, resilience and resolve and uh, staying focused and getting knocked down, but getting up and keep, keep moving forward. And uh, with the firm, that's the one that hit. So, uh, and typically that's where most people found him back in the day. But uh, if he'd stopped, and for me, that's the lesson that I took in, if he'd stopped and got discouraged, after no one bought a time to kill, which I think is his best work, uh, then we wouldn't have the firm. We wouldn't have the client. We wouldn't have the Pelican brief. We wouldn't have one John Grisham novel every year uh, to include this year. Right. So for the last twenty or thirty years yeah, or whatever I, it's been. Yeah. Well, so I always took that as okay. If the first book doesn't hit, I'm for sure writing a second one. If the second one doesn't hit, maybe then I'll reevaluate my life choices. But uh, but I was always going to write two. And uh, it just so happens that the, the first one took off and, and uh, people really liked it. Keeps, uh, kept going from there. Did you go all in at the beginning? Did you say, I'm, I'm a writer? Because you retired from the military. Mm-hmm. And then did you become a writer or were you doing something else? Because writing until you sell something doesn't pay anything. <laughs> right. So I had some contingency plans and I had some little side things that I was doing. But well, before I got out of the military, I started to write. So that last year, year and a half that I was in, when my job became to get out of the military, because it's this gigantic bureaucracy. And when you drop your papers in the military, now you kind of go in a separate pile. They're like, oh, okay. And he's out. And so almost as soon as you do that, you're like, pushed aside and it's time for you to go to dental, to go to medical, to go get read out of all these secret programs, to turn in your gear. And for each one of these things, you need to make an appointment and then you need to wait and then you need to do uh, sign up for transition classes. You have to sign about a gazillion things like you're buying a house, you know, you're signing a bunch of all these different things and trying to keep track of everything. So it becomes a full-time job to get out, but not quite as full as when you're in. So you have time. So that's when I started writing that first novel. So the first so you're still getting paid as you were getting out. Yeah. So you had that cushion. Yep. So it was, uh, wasn't done by the time I got out, but it was close. I had a few more months of editing to do. Like I had a, a finished manuscript. I had the rough draft by the time I got out in June of 2016. Uh, I'd say by November, I had finished all the edits and it was as good as I could possibly get it without professional help. Uh, and that's just, that's when I sent it off to, to Simon and Schuster. So between June and November, yeah, I had a couple side things, but I made the decision to 
become a professional writer. And I got that from Stephen Pressfield, who's now a, a dear friend of mine, he's such a great guy. He wrote Gates of Fire and Legend of Bagger Vance. And uh, he has a series of books on creativity. And one's called uh, The War of Art. Another one's called Turning Pro, uh, Warrior Ethos, Authentic Swing. Um, but in Turning Pro, he's like, make the decision to be a professional. If you're a professional, you sit down and you do the work, you write. And so for me, after, right after I got out of the military, I went to Mozambique to do some research for the second novel. And as I was flying over there, one of the uh, customs forms says occupation. And I distinctly remember thinking about Stephen Pressfield and I wrote writer. And uh, so in my head, I had become a professional writer right then. It wasn't something I dabbled in that maybe if it takes off, then I'll become a professional. No. I was already a professional writer in my mind. And, and this is before you sold it. Yep. That was before before you'd sold anything. Yep. And then I got to Simon and Schuster and uh, Brad Thor cracked the door for me. He's another author in this genre. He's a mutual friend, actually. Brad's so a friend of mine as well. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Such a great guy. So he uh, had sat next to a friend of mine at a, at one of these fundraising events for, uh, for the military. And then that friend had helped him with uh, certain aspects of his novels because his protagonist is a, is a Navy SEAL. And uh, as I was writing, my friend said, hey, do you want to talk to Brad Thor? And I said, yep, I, I love that. Will he, will he talk to me? Because I knew no one in publishing, no one in Hollywood, not, not, I knew no other writers, not, nothing like that. And uh, he said, yeah, let me set it up. So set it up and Brad spent about 45 minutes with me and it was like a job interview. And I think he wanted to make sure that I was writing for the right reasons and didn't just wake up and say, oh, you know what? Maybe I can make money this writing thing. Let's give this a shot. And uh, so I told him how I grew up surrounded by books and my mom was a librarian and I grew up in the 80s reading all these guys with protagonists who had backgrounds that I wanted to have one day, like uh, guys like Tom Clancy and Nelson DeMille and David Morrell and AJ Quinnell and JC Pollock and Mark Olden and Stephen Hunter. And uh, I just loved reading those books and knew that one day after the military, I would write books like that in that genre. And uh, eventually he was like, all right, stop talking to me. Um, if you write a book, your friend told me some things you did in the SEAL teams. And if you write one um, as a thank you for what you did in the teams, I can let my publisher know it's coming. I can't guarantee, I'm not gonna read it. I'm not gonna give you any advice along the way. Don't call me at all. Uh, and I can't guarantee they'll even open the package at Simon & Schuster. Can't guarantee they'll read one word. Definitely can't guarantee they'll like it. Uh, and now that we're friends, he tells me like he thought they were just gonna like read a couple sentences and be like, Brad, what do you want me to tell this guy? Uh, but instead, the opposite happened. And uh, yeah, so I'm forever thankful for, to him for doing that. So um, mostly I sent it off to Simon & Schuster in November. Brad let them know it was coming. And in December, I got the call that said, hey, we wanna, wanna meet up and talk about it. So flew out to New York in December of 2016. And uh, they said, hey, we want this, but you need an agent. And I was like, what's an agent? <laughs> and uh, so they introduced me to four agents and I picked one. And then a couple weeks later, they did the deal. So yeah, less than a year out of the military, I had, a, had the publishing deal. But I heard Brad said to you, I won't read anything, send it to me when it's done. And, and you called him and said, hey, it's done. And he said, is it, is it really done? Like, have you done everything? Yep. So I think it was uh, April, I want to say, of 2016 that uh, I called him. Because when we had the first conversation, he said, when is it, when is it going to be done? And I said, a year from today. And uh, I marked it in my calendar. And a year from that day, I called him back. And he picked up. And I said, it's done. And he said, is it done or is it, is it the best that you can possibly make it? And I said, well, it's finished, but I could probably read it a couple of times and do some editing. Uh, he said, okay, call me back when it's the best it can possibly be. And so then I took from, I think that was April of 2016. So I took from April, 2016 until November, 2016 of uh, reading it over and over and over again and sending it to my mom, to my dad, to a couple of trusted agents out there to 
by agents, I don't mean real agents, I mean friends that uh, who'd read it, read it, and give me some feedback on it. And uh, by November, I thought it was as good as I could possibly get it. And then, but not sure. professional editors. No, no. I asked Brad if he did that because uh, I'd heard of it somehow in my research, I guess. Um, but he said he didn't do that. So then I when he first when he submitted his first book or when really yeah. Yeah. So I've heard some other authors have had done it or I read somewhere in a blog or something. I don't know, really remember, but I knew that it, somehow I knew that it was an option. And, uh, and so I asked him about it during that first phone call and he said he didn't. So I said, okay, I'm not doing it either. <laughs> Brad was a friend and I actually picked up his book in the airport in Salt Lake. I was going to Europe to, uh, to go ski race. And, and I picked up the book and I was going and I, you know, I was with a couple of my friends and I was like, Hey, you know, this is, this is actually a buddy of mine. This is kind of cool. I have his book and they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. You know, that's all great. And we were uh, going along the little people movers there, you know, uh-huh. in the airport in Salt Lake and Brad was going in the opposite direction. No way. He was that's going awesome. on a book tour and I was like, Hey, I just bought your book and, uh, yeah, and he awesome. said, I'll come back. I'll, I'll sign it for you. So, uh, such a great guy. Yeah, I would definitely not be here where I am today without him. That's why the, uh, the third novel right there, I dedicated it to him. Do you have a ritual similar to Pressfield? You're talking about Stephen Pressfield as well, who has his ritual. I mean, what he like points the cannon at himself to get the, to get the good, good thoughts coming and, and says the, uh, what, what is it? The, uh, the, the, the prayer of the muse and, and these kinds of things before he gets going. Do you right. do anything like that or? So right now it's such a scramble to find quiet time, especially now that we're in the midst of COVID and we're in the house and we're all packed in. I have three kids out there um, and it's just insanity. So, but I do have a semi-ritual in that I, for the first, I haven't done it for this fourth one yet, but I took a yellow sticky and I wrote the theme of the novel on that yellow sticky. For the first one, I wrote Revenge on it so that if one paragraph or chapter or even a sentence didn't directly or more importantly indirectly lead back to that theme then i got rid of it right away so the second one was a story of redemption so i had redemption there uh the third one was the dark side of man and then uh so this fourth one really explores the legality and ethics behind targeted assassinations um the morality behind doing that which is something that's more closely associated with the state of israel uh than it is with us although we do it as well obviously but um uh, so I, so I, my ritual was go someplace quiet. I take off my watch, set it down next to me and get to work. So that's kind of the, uh, Oh, and coffee, <laughs> the first coffee and coffee. Is that intravenously or, or you actually drank it? <laughs> if I could figure it out. Yeah. If I wasn't so scared of needles, I'd probably do it that way. But, uh, yeah, no, just, just the coffee. Gotta, gotta keep caffeinated. <laughs> and, and the letting go of the, of the, of the watch is, is that's letting go of time. Do you have a, do you have a timer? Do you have anything? Or are you just, what, do you have any goal? Do you have a goal for the day or do you no, just kind of go? I need to get more disciplined. So up until this point, I have, uh, you know, realized this was a startup and any startup, I think, uh, you need to be very adaptable I mean, you need to be flexible. You need to be able to take advantage of emerging opportunities. You need to be able to on the battlefield, but identify gaps in the enemy's defenses or in their plan, um, and adapt quicker than the enemy, um, take advantage of emerging opportunities and momentum. But uh, I think now, now that this third novel has hit, uh, it is time to get more disciplined in my approach. Meaning uh, up until this point, everything's been a mad scramble, mad dash, sprint, opportunity here, 
off I go, like that sort of thing. Now that that foundation is more established, it's time to get more disciplined about the approach. Meaning uh, if I have my writing time blocked off and if someone wants to do an interview or podcast or whatever it is, well, the answer is no during that time. And my publicist deals with all that and I am writing and I have that four hours, that five hours, that six hours, whatever that is, blocked off to write. Then I have an hour for emails. Then I have, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, where in the past, I think I've, I've been worried I would miss something that would allow me to build the readership and build this thing that would then allow me to do what I love, which is writing, if that makes sense. So, um, so going forward, and I think that's going to happen uh, over the summer because I'm still coming down off this virtual book tour and this virtual push to get the, the third novel on the New York Times list and, uh, and all that. Now there's two on the audio New York Times list, the first book and the third. So it's been, it's been really crazy. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to get more disciplined in my approach here and uh, that I'll have the day broken down into segments and that writing one, because the interruptions are what kill you, as you know, when you're writing, like interruptions are the ones that just kill you. So having that time blocked off just to write, just to do emails, just to do social media, like that sort of thing, that's, uh, that, that's the next phase in the development of, uh, of this, this brand, essentially. Well, because it's hard enough to, to get yourself pointed in the right direction when you're writing. I mean, it's, it's, it's the easiest thing to procrastinate on, that's <laughs> true. There's nobody else there. There's no one else over your shoulder. There's no one watching you, uh, seeing what you're going to do. Like, a, I don't know, somebody in a supervisor or anything like that. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it can be, but I haven't had that luxury. And I think not having the luxury of being able to procrastinate, um, or not do something that is productive helped. Um, it's also exhausting. So, so, you know, it, it's, uh, to be able to sit there and just daydream, daydreaming is a, is an important part of writing and an important part of uh, being creative and just, you know, sitting there and thinking about things, uh, writing down a couple notes as they come to you or, uh, maybe doing a little research here and there as you're going. Um, like, I think that's all, that's all part of it for me. Um, and I think you can probably get wrapped around, okay, am I sitting, am I writing, uh, physically putting my fingers on this keyboard? If not, oh, it was a waste of a day. Not really, not really. Um, like I was just doing my reading list for, I do a monthly reading list that comes out. So it's six books from my reading. I didn't want to put out my huge reading list just one time and have it be over. So I take six books from that and I talk about how they impacted me when I read them, that sort of thing. And I was just reading in Tom Rick's fiasco this morning. I was just catching up on, on that one. Cause I read it. Gosh, 2011. I think I read that book, but, uh, but I was just going through it real quick and I saw something that fits perfectly into a conversation that my characters are currently having at my other computer downstairs in the guest room uh, right now. So had I not been doing that, um, which is not directly writing uh, the new book, but it sparked something and I saw a passage that is going to be brought into and woven into a conversation that, uh, that, that my characters are having in the fourth novel. So it's crazy where these ideas come from and, uh, and how you get them and how, like, if I decided not to do that today, like, who knows if I would have ever even woven that in. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's all, the process is kind of crazy. Well, I mean, and, and so you have to be generous with yourself with, you know, that, Oh, I didn't fail today. I didn't get, I didn't, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And, and there are days that it just, it just doesn't happen, but you are showing up and you're, and you're doing it. So, because the thing is, it's really easy to get to that point where 
if you're, if you're beating yourself up, then tomorrow becomes huge drudgery and the next day is even worse and, and you're not ending up doing anything that's really, that's really beneficial. But also, but also finding the way that, or being, I guess, being open to the idea that, that ideas are going to come. I noticed that one of the books that you put on your, on your reading list was Stephen King's On Writing. Yep, right over there. Right over there. And he talks about, he talks about like the boys in the basement, right? That it's like he shows up at the same place. And, you know, if you, if you show up at the same place every day, then inspiration knows where to find you. And uh, ah, I like that. I like that. Yeah. That would a crazy story. I love those books that uh, or authors that are more autobiographical rather than how to uh, for authors. Um, John LeCarre has uh, the, what's called the pigeon, the pigeon tunnel over there, which is kind of a, autobiography but it's really it's about writing but it's really his life story uh on writing uh successful novelist i got frederick forsyth over there that just showed up the other day uh i was going to read that soon but uh but i love those and stephen king's oh my gosh what a story as far as resilience and sticking with it like oh my gosh like he um he was just writing some little mat for i forget how much it was but it was not much that he would sell his stories to magazines for and uh just what an incredible story and then you know, after being a success, he gets hit by a van, almost hit by a character in one of his novels, almost, almost dies, has to come back from that. Like, what an amazing story. Just and then know. that guy ended up dying in mysterious ways. Oh, really? I didn't know like, that. Like, later on, right? I think he talked about that, that, that it was sort of like the guy died in his sleep and nobody really knew why. And it's like, I think you messed with the wrong guy. <laughs> That's freaky. I did not know that. That's crazy. No. I think so. I don't know that it's, I don't know if it's urban legend, but I feel like I read that. I feel like <laughs> we'll it's actually it. in, in, in his book. And, but, but, but it's because uh, it, because you're self-taught, right? You're self-taught on writing. You're, you're writing from reading, which a lot of people talk about. If you want to be a writer, you need to be a reader. Yep. I'm a fan first. And I've been, it's not like I just woke up one day and then went back and read all the things that I should have read or something like that. No, I read those my entire life. I read Hunt for Red October. It came out in uh, Naval Institute Press, 1984. I read it in 1985. Um, and uh, in that, so these things have all been a part of me. And I read them through that, the lens that allowed me to like experience the magic of those novels during the time that they were written. So, you know, Height of the Cold War, Reagan's in the White House, you know, 1984 Olympics, uh, Rand Hot, uh, Hostage Crisis, uh, TVA hijackings, like all these things are happening. And I'm a kid at this, uh, during this very formative time from like 1980 to 1990, let's say, and I'm reading all those guys. So uh, that's really what I'm trying to capture when I'm writing is that same magic that I felt reading those books during that time frame, that's the kind of magic that I'm trying to capture. And, and what's the magic specifically? What do you mean? I mean, they're capturing the moment or what's the, what is the specific magic? All those things, all those books that I mentioned, all those authors, they, there's one thing that differentiates them from, from the ones I have not mentioned and it's they have heart and that's what it is. It's uh, they have heart. So there's something that, that, yeah, there's a structure of course. And I got introduced to Joseph Campbell very early on when he did a series of interviews with Bill Moyers on PBS called the power of myth. Uh, that was 1988. My mom being a librarian, she sat me down. We watched that together. Uh, I read here with a thousand faces right after that. I've read it again since. Um, but there was this monolith, there was this, this hero's journey. And I applied that from that time, up through today if i see something that doesn't work on tv or in a movie or in a book uh or doesn't work for me um then i kind of apply that and say what was missing there uh there was no mentor that may be what it is maybe it's something that's just internal i can't quite put my finger on it but he wasn't handed given knowledge he wasn't given a tool to help him when he got 
to the crucible um, and was tested, uh, that sort of thing. So there are these elements that I very intentionally wove in, although most won't even notice them, uh, wove into all the novels. Um, so that's always there at the forefront. But what differentiates the really great authors in the genre uh, from just good stories is the, the ones that resonate have heart. And so that's the, that's the magic. And is the heart through, through your protagonist? Is that how we're seeing the heart? I think in, in mine it is. And in other ones, you know, it's one of those things you can't quite put your finger on if you have to uh, try to explain it and it probably doesn't have it. Uh, it's that one uh, intangible. That, uh, that you can't write down or can't, when you get to the end, say, oh, I know what's my thing. It was the heart. Let's put that in. No, it doesn't work that way. That's the intangible right there. Um, so, yeah, it's just some, I don't know how to explain it, but that's what it is. Do, do you feel like, because a lot of these, a lot of these authors have, have sort of almost like a, almost like a theme kind of thing, like, you know, that, that draws all of them together. You say you have your, your sticky note that you put on your computer and, you know, like as a kid, I'd read, you know, some, some like Ludlum and these kinds of things where it was like sort of megalomania kind of thing was, was always the, always the enemy in some ways. And, and, and with yours, it looked like, which I was sort of surprised a little bit about it with, with the with the corruption within the government, mm-hmm. yeah. and which is kind of an interesting situation too, in that you worked for the government. Right, right. So, yeah, it's uh, it's very natural for me, I think, because of my experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, seeing those situations get worse <laughs> over time, uh, that sort of thing. Just seeing us more embroiled. Uh, in those in those countries, uh, strategic visions changes, strategic mistakes. That if we had made those same mistakes tactically, then we would have been court-martialed and thrown out of the military. But at the strategic level, you get promoted and go sit on boards <laughs> of various different companies and make money dollars a year for showing up for one meeting. So uh, for me, making those guys uh, essentially the quote-unquote bad guys, um, uh, whether they're just enablers or they're maybe enabling by their ineptitude or they're actually um, bad guys and evil by design. Um, for me, that's, it, it's natural for me to explore those because then that's a lot of how I felt on the battlefield. So, um, so, so yeah, so for me, that's probably gonna be a theme, the gigantic bureaucracies, uh, the politicians who send young men and women to their deaths who never did it themselves, uh, that sort of thing. So people that enter politics uh, and then all of a sudden they emerge 10, 15, 20 years later, uh, much more wealthy than they entered. Uh, and it wasn't because <laughs> of their salary. Um, so those sorts of things I think are going to be uh, themes that are common in my novels. What is the contrast between <clears throat> what's the contrast between what you experienced on the SEAL team versus what you see, you know, what you had to deal with on the bureaucratic level? Yeah, so ours is, I mean, it's a it's a mission. You have a mission, you know, you're doing it for the guys to your right and left, um, and you're going out and you're you're getting it done. But you know, at the same time, it's hard to be you can't be immune, especially as a leader, when you're gonna get asked questions by your guys, hey, why are we here? Why can't we do night raids right now? Why do we have to take these indigenous forces with us? Like those kind of questions. You have to have good answers and they have to be honest answers. You can't just parrot what the senior leaders are telling you because then you look like an idiot. And uh, the E5 mafia, they'll see it right away. They'll sense it, they'll smell it and you lose all credibility. Um, So um, you have to put thought into these things and your guys have to know that you put thought into these things and that what they can trust about you 
is that they're going to get your honest assessment, uh, which is ironically the same thing that those senior leaders have to trust that they're going to get your honest assessment, even if it's what not what they you know want to hear or not. Like that's the thing they need to trust is that they are going to get your honest assessment just like your guys are. So that's what you're building really as a leader is that trust. Uh, you're establishing it and you're always continuing to build it through every conversation, through every briefing, through all your actions, like you're building you know, that trust continually. Um, so uh, I where was I going with that? <laughs> where was I going with that? It's, it's a little interesting too, because I think, I mean, you're talking about the leadership side, but I think, it, you know, and, and tell me if I'm wrong on this, but but every every team member is really giving as much as I mean, as I understand it, to be on the seals, you are giving as much as you possibly can. It's not like you're punching a time clock. It's like I can do more to be more prepared and to be a better teammate. Oh yeah, there's no time clock. It is all that pendulum is 100% on the side, the side of the team, because that's what you owe the guys under your command. It's what you owe their families. It's what you owe uh, the country, the mission. Um, so yeah, that you are solely focused on being the best combat leader, the best operator that you can possibly be at all times. So, um, and it's important to, that your family knows that too. So uh, my wife knew that. Um, you know, the kid as hard as it is, like that's the reality of it. Uh, if you want to be the best operator you possibly can. That's where that pendulum has to be. I'm not saying once you get to like a shore duty somewhere, it can't swing back the other direction or when you get out, it has to swing back the other direction. That has to be part of the conversation with your spouse as well is that they eventually it's not going to be about the team anymore. Eventually it's going to be about us and our family. But, uh, but right now at this stage where I'm getting ready to take guys into Iraq or take guys into Afghanistan, uh, well, I owe it to them and their families to be as prepared as I possibly can to make the best decisions under fire uh, that I possibly can. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty, uh, it's a, it's an interesting place to, to be and to, to work. And it's, uh, for me, I never looked at it as a career. It was always the profession of arms. Uh, it's not the career of arms for a reason. Uh, and those are things that, uh, that winds, uh, weave their way into my novels as well. Are you ever more challenged in your life than you were at war? Yes. <laughs> yes, 100%. Um, that's the short answer. But okay. uh, as you know, we have a, you know, you're going to get knocked down. I think that's also one of the things about these books that resonates is that what we share with everyone else on the planet is that we're going to get knocked down. Each and every person is going to take a hit uh, and are going to get knocked down. And what's important isn't just getting back up, but it's how you get back up and move forward because that's going to impact those around you. And it can maybe impact not just your spouse, not just your kids, not just your immediate family, but anybody in your circle. Um, so, so that's what we share with everyone, whether there's someone in sub-Saharan Africa, somebody in Northern Europe, someone in China, wherever, doesn't matter. Everyone's going to get knocked down and you're going to have to keep moving forward. So that is really woven into the pages of these novels as well. And I think that's also why they resonate because people can relate to that. Um, and for us, as you know, we have a, a middle child with some severe special needs, which is why we ended up in Park City um, because of the National Ability Center, which is, is right down the street. And we discovered this during my last uh, couple of years in the military when I wasn't taking guys downrange anymore. And we started coming up here to, to ski and we found the National Ability Center and looked into that. And, uh, then we brought our middle child up here with us and uh, we brought someone with him to help though. And uh, we realized, hey, we don't need to stay in San Diego. We're not tied um, because of his condition to um, the support network that we've established here in San Diego. We can move somewhere. And so we ended up in, in Park City, mostly because of that, uh, the National Ability Center down the street. So point being, we didn't expect 
that to happen. Um, and uh, he was born with a genetic condition that means he needs 24-7 full-time care for life. So everything from eating to changing diapers to, to walking, I mean, he can stumble around a little bit. Um, but uh, he's a sweet little guy, but he needs full-time care. You have to be on him every single second of every single day and zip him into a, a thing at night. Um, so that's, yeah, that's more challenging uh, dealing with that as a family than anything that happened downrange. I mean, um, downrange war is primal. We've been doing it since the beginning of time. Um, you have certain, uh, I mean, you shouldn't be, shouldn't be a shock when something goes wrong downrange. Like that's the enemy always gets a vote. Um, and in this case with our son, life got a vote and, uh, you know, he, he's our sweet little guy, and, but we have to raise two other kids at the same time. And part of that is not, is doing things so that their childhoods, when they look back, they don't, it's not so their memories aren't solely about their brother's condition and about us being focused on him all the time. It's, uh, it's raising them hopefully in a way that makes us all more loving, compassionate people because of our experience with our middle child. Um, so that's kind of how we look at it. But that is uh, each and every day much more challenging than anything that I experienced uh, in the military. Does that relate to one of your, one of your mottos on your, on your website is strength and honor? It's easy to see that in a military, in a, it's easy to read that in a military way. But yeah. what, what does strength and honor mean to you? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a way to live life. Um, be an example to those other kids, uh, uh, an example to other families that are dealing with uh, something, even if it's not exactly the same, it's uh, some sort of adversity. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, man, it's my responsibility. It's our responsibility, my wife, um, to, uh, well, we're just doing the best we can like everybody else, but kind of seeding that in, uh, in that foundation of strength and honor, like that's, uh, that resonates definitely beyond the confines of the battlefield. And I'd imagine it's not a one-way thing as well. It's not you and your wife having to be strong and honorable. I'd imagine you see some great strength and honor in, 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 in your middle child, but also in your other children as well. I mean, it's not, you think you're teaching them, but I'd imagine there's probably a fair amount that you get to learn along the way too. Yeah, it's fascinating about how resilient kids are, and uh, especially for them, it's all they've ever known. So it's, uh, he's the middle one. But even our, our daughter, who's the oldest one, is just a couple years older. So her, all her memories of, uh, are of her brother with this condition. So, um, yeah, it's all they've known. It's their, uh, it's their normal. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just try to live each and every day in a way that, uh, that makes us all more, yeah, humble, compassionate, loving people. Um, and uh, that way as a family as well. So that's really where we find our strength is in that. Forces, and it is in it. Oh, go ahead. You're forced to, you're forced to because the alternative is uh, the alternative is not an option to let it get you down, to let it uh, drag you down, to just think about the worst parts of it, that sort of thing. Like that, that's not an option. It's not a not a way to not a way to live that's going to uh, benefit anyone. But sometimes it's almost like if we're forced to do something, it, it can be a gift as well, right? I mean, it seems like to a certain extent, you are somebody who who seeks uh, who seeks situations that that require your best. So this in a way, yeah. you're forcing yourself. What's that? <laughs> yeah, this one certainly does uh, each and every day. That's for sure, um, which is also exhausting. But um, no, yeah, that's true. 
that's true. No, you're, yeah, there's no other option there uh, where, there, where there is an option, I guess, and where you do, well, I guess you can choose. I mean, you, you have a choice uh, of how you're going to deal with the carbs that you're dealt with. That's a choice. Um, and uh, so I can only, I mean, uh, for me, there's only one way to play these things. Um, but sadly, when you look at, across the board, uh, more often than not, it, uh, uh, it destroys families, there's divorces, there's, uh, you know, alcoholism, there's abuse, there's all sorts of things when you look. So for us, like none of that stuff was, uh, none of that stuff is an option. You got to play the cards you're dealt and play them the best way you can in a way that uh, hopefully helps as many people along the way that you possibly can. Well, that's a message for all of us too, right? I mean, it's, we do think oftentimes that, that if something happens, that it's almost a chemical response, right? But we do have, we do have the ability to, to figure out how we want to craft a response and what is the most healthy and beneficial way to create that and, and healthy for, for us as well. I mean, oftentimes we are, we can be the victim of our own chemical situation in our, in our own bodies that goes, yeah, well, that's not really the direction I need to go. It's not the most beneficial direction. Now back to the, back to the writing just a little bit. You, uh, in, in looking at your books on your blogs, you had the fountainhead on there and you, mm-hmm. you included a, a bit of a quote from mm-hmm. Howard Rourke, who is, who is one of, one of the most amazing characters I think out there and, in literature, but it's, uh, you know, saying not who will let me, but who will stop me. That's right. That's right. And, I love that. And, and is that something, is that something you looked at when you were, when you were writing your, writing your books, when you were starting to be an author, when, I mean, or is it something that informs the rest of your life? Is, is, is that, is that a big part of who you are? Is like, well, you can try to stop me. That's- yeah, I felt that way before I read that. And I think for me, reading both The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged just uh, reinforced things I already knew or things I was, I was already feeling if someone hadn't uh, taught them to me or taught me how to think logically or whatever else. They, it just kind of reaffirmed like, ah, oh, it's okay to think like this. Like there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with me. Um, and uh, so that quote in particular, it's been, uh, of course, it's, you know, all over things that say, you know, I'm Rand and it's morphed a little bit, but really it's her character uh, that says it in that, that paragraph near the beginning of the novel. But, uh, but yeah, no, I love that. And of course it's her coming out through that, uh, through that character. But uh, Ayn Rand is a fascinating individual in her own right. Uh, there's a great um, uh, documentary on her that I think came out in 97 or 98, but uh, oh, it, it's in, incredible what she uh, what she overcame and what she did throughout her life. But uh, but yeah, I've always felt that, that way. Yeah, who's gonna? And, and I don't like getting pushed around. That's the other part. Like when someone pushes, it makes me very angry. Um, I don't like getting bullied. Um, and uh, so yeah, I think there's a part of that in there too. So uh, you know, Howard Roark thinks the thought the same way in there. And uh, he was that uh, that's in a, a certain scene in the chapter where the, the dean of the of the school of architecture is uh, sitting in the office and essentially telling him to comply or else. And uh, it, yeah, he wasn't going to stand for it. He's going to be his own man. So uh, you know, follow follow his bliss and be uh, be true to his vision. Um, so I liked, yeah, that resonated with me. Yeah, he's going to stop me. But that's a, that's a big challenge. I mean, it's a big challenge for people in the world where oftentimes we feel like we need permission from somewhere else in order to, in order to move forward. But it's also, it's also reflective of the naysayers. I mean, there's so many naysayers, you know, there's always going to be somebody like, really, why, 
you're, you're going to, I mean, I'm sure you heard a ton of that. You're, you're, you're retiring from the seals. You've had, you've had a good 20 year run and, and you're saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to write novels now. I'd imagine there were a couple of people out there who said, you're an idiot. Why don't you just get a job and be a grown up? Oh, yeah. Well, they said the same things both like when I was going to be a seal. Uh, it's the same thing. It's the same. It's a, uh, this, the, the same type of people said the same types of things. You know how hard that is? You know the odds of becoming a seal? Do you know how hard getting published is? Do you know how hard it is to write a book? Uh, do you know how hard it is to get published by Simon & Schuster? Um, and my answer is always the same. No, I have no idea because I didn't spend any bandwidth worried about that. Um, all my bandwidth, like for the seal team, yeah, 80% attrition. That's why I want to go. That's all the thought that I gave to it right there. That was one second. Everything else was focused on making myself the best buds candidate I could be at the time. And then after making it through buds, then the best seal, the best operator I could possibly be. Um, so always want to continue to improve along the way. But yes, same thing. Yeah, everybody that uh, a lot of naysayers out there. I mean, all one needs to do is go to the comment section of a, uh, uh, a YouTube video or uh, anywhere else on social media and sift through some of those comments. We don't spend too much time there because it's uh, oh man, it's uh, it doesn't do anything for uh, your faith in humanity, that's for sure. Spent too much time amongst those comments. But uh, yeah, most of the people spending time on the negative side of that, um, of those comments, like uh, if, if only they took that negativity and applied it elsewhere to in a positive direction uh, to improve their station in life or their families or uh, to help somebody out, lend someone a hand, make someone's day instead of doing the exact opposite of all those things. Like, I think it's a terror. I don't think there's many of those people in their death that are going to be like, I wish I'd left one more horrible review and ruined somebody's day. That's wish. I wish I could do that. Play, hand me my phone. Like, I, I don't think so. I've never heard of that. I hope you're right that there aren't people who are saying that they, that they wish they had. I wish I'd just done a few more horrible reviews and ruined more people's days. Like, I don't think you get to your deathbed and think that way, but I, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But I'm um, certainly not going to live that way. So I try to, uh, you know, I try to never miss an opportunity to, to make somebody's day if I can. But as you as you acknowledge, these things are difficult, right? I mean, going through going through SEAL training, getting through 80 percent attrition rate. You can ring the bell at any time. You can go over and you can ring the bell and you can leave. You don't have to struggle to ring the bell, and but you're done. You're never you're not coming back after you ring the bell. And being being a writer is a really similar thing too, right? I mean, sometimes I've heard you know about some writers that uh, you know that happy hour comes earlier and earlier every day you know that that it's a re, it can be a real challenge what is the is there a story that you tell yourself in those in those difficult moments those moments when you want to quit well yes and uh i'll go back to the buds uh and so what i thought about a lot was putting things in relative terms so meaning well, I'm sitting there on the beach or I'm in push-up position on the beach. I'm getting yelled at or it's day three of hell week. I'm on the verge of hypothermia. Everybody's quitting in droves. The instructor's yelling at you that you're no good. I'll need just one more quitter and everybody else gets to rest for a minute or whatever it is. I thought, you know what? I am not storming the beaches in Normandy. I am not uh, sprinting up the beach at an entrenched, elevated enemy machine gun position. Uh, I'm not going across the beach at Iwo Jima. Um, uh, I'm not doing the things that people have done from the inception of this country up until today to give me the freedom to follow my dream and be here on the beach getting yelled at in Southern California. Uh, I'm like, you know what? I can do this. Uh, so I thought about that quite a bit to put it in relative terms uh, as I was going through. And I took it in small chunks. Uh, you know, People say, just go and make it to 
the next meal. And I took it a little, I went one better. And that's, uh, I thought the next evolution. So, okay, we, we're done with log PT. Okay, now we're running to the obstacle course. Okay, that's the next thing I need to do is run from here to the obstacle course. Okay, now I'm at the obstacle course. Now what do I do? Now I run the obstacle course. Okay, what's next? Oh, we get the boats and we're putting them on our heads and we're running six miles or whatever, three miles or whatever to the chow hall. Okay, now I've done that. What am I gonna do now? Now I'm gonna eat. Now, you know, so I took it in those small chunks to get through that full week of hell week uh, when 80% of others do not. Um, and so same thing with writing. You know, I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, oh man, I got a well long ways to go here. And uh, then I'm like, you know what? I just need to finish this paragraph. Uh, I need to finish this one conversation in this chapter. Uh, I need to finish this chapter. Uh, like that sort of thing. So you got to take it in tiny chunks. Some people talking about, you know, they say, how do you eat an elephant? But one bite at a time. Uh, so you know, you think of it in in those terms, and eventually, what happens? Oh, you make it through Hell Week. Oh, amazing! And next thing you know, oh wow, you have a novel. Then you can go back and edit. Um, so it's uh, it's it's putting in those relative terms, and then taking things piece by piece in small chunks. So connecting and honoring your history was was a big part of it. But it also sounded like, I mean, to me, I kind of think of it in, in, in similar terms of like, it's almost like you were, you were in it as opposed to being on top of it. I mean, I think in a, in a lot of our lives, we can feel like we can, we can dominate whatever we're in, we're in and we can, we can push it to whatever, whatever finish line we want. But it's almost like, I mean, for me, climbing Kilimanjaro, I felt like I ran into the, I ran into the summit. Yeah, because I'd lost I'd lost the ability to comprehend it. You just kind of you kind of keep going and you're just and you're in it. And that little bit like we're going to get right there, then we're going to get right there, then we're going to get right there. And 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 at some point your brain goes, look, getting right there and right there and right there makes me tired. So I'm going to let go. I'm just going to let go of, of this domination kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. I always felt like in running cross country or something like that, taking a break, a backpacking, um, I'd be like, okay, if I take this break, you know what I'm going to have to do when the break's over? Keep going. So I can keep going now or I can wait 15 minutes. <laughs> Regardless, I'm going to keep going. Um, so yeah, I, I guess you yeah, think about it in those terms as, as well. But uh, yeah, and every now and again, it's okay to take a break. <laughs> That's important too. You know? Otherwise, you drive everyone around you insane. And possibly drive, drive yourself insane too. Possible, I mean, yeah. It's, yeah, that's a possibility. We don't have the ability to just sort of for, sort of escape. Uh, but but back to back to Howard Rourke. Howard Rourke. I mean, one of the one of the cool things I remember. I, I read this. I don't even remember. I mean, it was like this was nineteen eighty seven. Oh wow! Okay. I think that I read the Fountainhead, so it was a long time ago. So yeah. so so I'm going deep deep in the recesses here, but. But there was a scene where he was, they were building one of his houses. He was the, or one of his structures. I don't remember whether it was a house or not. And he's the architect and his architecture is, is, uh, is bold to mm. say the least. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's bold, uh, but it, but it fits right. It's, it's, everything's efficient. I mean, it sort of informed my view of architecture in a lot of ways in that, that things are supposed to be there for a reason. They're not just there as a facade or a tribute to somebody else's vision of what's beautiful. But this guy was, was putting in the electricity and he went over to him and he said, Hey, look, if you do it like this. And I think, I, I think what he did was he sort of like cut a hole in, you know, in, in a beam or something like that. And was like, look, you can run the electricity right up through the, right up through, through this hole, which to me, 
I look back on it and I go, okay, well, he was a, he wasn't just an architect. He's not this guy who just went through the academic part of it. He was a tradesman mm-hmm. and he was trying to find the efficient part of it. Is there, is there a parallel for you in having gone to the SEALs as an enlisted guy and then eventually being that guy who is, who is leading, leading teams and, yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, I wanted to come in and I wanted to start at that ground level and I wanted to essentially start in the mail room and work my way up. Uh, I wanted to learn the trade, establish a reputation. I wanted to be a sniper and typically officers aren't snipers. Um, and wanted to, I, what I didn't want to be was the, the caricature of an officer that, that was always portrayed in uh, the books and movies I read in the 80s where he brand new officer shows up in Vietnam, makes everybody shave and press their uniforms and start saluting and then immediately leads them right into an ambush. Like that was, that was kind of like what happened. And I was like, Ooh, I don't want to be that guy. Like, I'm not going to do that. Um, and how do I get around that? Oh, I learned how to do this first. Um, and I go in as an enlisted guy and I learn how to be a sniper and I learn the trade. I learn how to work the radios. I learn how to work the automatic weapons. Um, I established that reputation. So there's that foundation of trust. Um, and I never forget what it's like to be the E5 sitting in the platoon space, waiting on the word from my officers and chief who are in the meeting with the commanding officer. Like that's what I never forgot is what it was like to be that E5 and be part of that E5 mafia. And for me, that worked. I'm not saying it's the way to do it for everybody, but for me, that was that was the way that that worked out. Um, and yeah, so it's the same. It's the same thing. Same thing. Got to learn that trade, establish that that reputation, that foundation, and really, it's uh, it's all based around your character. So that's what's uh, that's what really forms that foundation. Well, character and being able to instill trust in the people that you're leading. You're not just leading because of whatever insignia or bars or whatever you have on your jersey it's, it's, or on your uniform. It's, it's based on who you are and how you conduct yourself. Yeah, all based on trust, that's for sure. And I'd assume that's something you feel like you have to, you have to earn every day as well. Yeah. Every interaction is an opportunity to continue building it. So you can't let one of those opportunities pass by because it's, it's that important. Uh, it could be just a one word greeting in the hallway, uh, that to, uh, to a huge brief or to, uh, to running a, a full on exercise in a desert warfare training center or whatever it may be, um, that all establish. It's all an opportunity to build trust with the guys. Did the, did the Navy prepare you to be a SEAL? more than the books that you read no. which one prepared you more <laughs> books um yeah navy did nothing uh really oh ridiculous uh i mean the navy i think of the regular navy like uh, okay but, but the seal teams did the seal teams prepare you to be a seal as much as the books that you read or did the books prepare you more oh, yeah uh, seal, the seal teams i'm thinking when i think navy i'm, I'm thinking like all the uh, like officer candidate school boot camp like that sort of thing big navy or uh yeah yeah none of that stuff but uh yeah i'm sure there's a couple of gems here and there that i picked up and i try to block boot camp and ocs out of my mind because it seemed it was so horrible as far as uh allocation of time energy effort and resources um I, yeah anyway basically uh, saying it was useless my head, yes. uh, i hate to say that because you can always find good in everything but i try to i block those out because it's awful um we just get yelled at for a few weeks it's great um good times folding underwear and t-shirts and uh, folding yeah you're making your bed it's great stuff um but yeah no when you get to the seal teams i got i think when i got to the team i had one 
Vietnam era guy still there who had a break in service. So we still had one, one of the Vietnam guys around. Um, some senior level Vietnam guys were still there, but I mean, the ones that I interacted with as a, as a new guy. So we got to pick his brain. We had a couple guys that were on the, the airfield at, um, in Panama, the airfield. Um, we had a guy that was in Mogadishu as a sniper working with the Delta force guys there. Um, so we had guys who had been part of, uh, who had had experience, uh, the, in some of the flashpoints that had happened since Vietnam. Um, so, so yeah, those guys, the lessons from the guys in Vietnam were still being passed along and those really Vietnam for special operations was a, was a watershed moment um, in history uh, and that we developed our tactics, techniques, procedures that uh, lasted right up until, and even, even some of them through, uh, through to today. But, but really between Vietnam and September 11th when we weren't in sustained combat operations um, anywhere in the world, we had flashpoints, but not sustained combat. Um, we really lived off their reputation. Um, and you know, we owed it to those guys to be the best seals we could possibly be to continue that, that reputation of, of, of excellence. And, uh, you know, that, that just putting fear into the hearts of the enemy, like they did in Vietnam. Um, so, so yeah, they, they, they definitely prepared me, but also helped that I had that, that coming in that I'd, uh, you know, I'd worked out in a way that I thought would make me a better operator. I'd read things that I thought would make me a better operator. I studied warfare, terrorism, insurgencies, counterinsurgencies. Uh, so all of that really helped form that foundation. And then I get make it through buds, which really shows really shows that you're safe, safe with weapons, that uh, that you're comfortable underwater, and that you want to be there. Like that's really all buds does. And then you go to SEAL qualification training to really get that next level education, that graduate level education. But then you get to your team. And, uh, and get ready to do your, your workup with your platoon. Uh, and that's really your PhD um, level if you looked at it like that as a progression. Um, so yeah, they prepare you. So as much prepare as you, you, that's yeah. your job to be prepared for war. It was. The first podcast I did actually was with a guy named Carlos Melita, who was actually on the, on the airfield in Panama. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And actually he, he's in a wheelchair now as a result of he, he got shot. He, he had three rockets and he took the middle rocket out just to be, cause they didn't know exactly his job was to, was to uh, guard the entrance oh, wow. with that. And so he was, he was, he was ready if something happened and he actually got shot right where, where right where the rocket would have, would have been. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. That was a crazy situation right there Ugh. but he said that was a change because there'd been there'd been a, a gulf of time in between yeah when when you were active and when you weren't and so uh so interesting now i don't know how i, I don't know how stressful a situation i subjected you to and asking you to come drive a bobsled you said it was something that you'd always wanted to do how did that was it scary for you yes yeah, that was crazy. Like, I, and more and more like anticipating, it's kind of like a jump. Like, I'm not a big air guy. I did not like jumping out of planes. Like, I did it for the job. I do not do it today. But, uh, you know, you got to pack your chutes. So now you're getting nervous, you know, because whatever. And then, you, then you're waiting for the plane. You're waiting on weather. You're kind of sitting there. And then you get, okay, there's a weather break. Now we're getting on the plane. Okay, now the engines are starting up. Now we're going up to altitude. Okay, now the doors are opening. Now there's the guy looking, sticking his head out, spotting the drop zone. Now you're standing up. You're moving like there's a lot of things that you have to go through to get to that jumping out. Like once I jumped out, I was fine. It was great. But, uh, but I had those things that could go things. wrong along the way. Right. I mean, that's what you're going through in the moment. You're going through, okay, procedures. Okay. Here's my procedures. And then here is what happens if I, if I look and I don't have an inflated chute behind me, here's how I, I troubleshoot this and problem solve as I hurtle towards earth. Um, so for the bobsled, yeah, that was like kind of the same thing. And that, you know, it drove up there. Okay. 
we, we hung out, we got a brief, we sat in the things, then we went up and we did it all together. Then it was time to go by ourselves. And they put us on this track just by ourselves with no one that knows what they're doing. It's just like, we're driving these things. So yeah, that was crazy. And then once you're in it, you know, once they shove you down that track, like you're in, there's no getting out. Same thing when you get to that door and you jump out of the plane, like you're in it. You're not, same thing if they're like at a rapid, if you're gonna do your kayaking and you get to the top of that rapid, although I feel much more comfortable there for some reason. Uh, and then you drop into that rapid, uh, like there's no getting out of it. Like, yeah, you can, you know, catch an eddy or whatever, but, but not really. If you're in the middle of a rapid, like you're going, you're gonna, you're committed. Like you committed to jump out. Bobsled, same thing, you commit. And that thing was fast and it's pretty violent. Like you get thrown around in there pretty dang good. And uh, it's fast and it was, it was cool though. I'm glad that I, I did it. That was awesome. But uh, yeah, I appreciate you inviting me. That was awesome. Well, you didn't have, I mean, like you were talking about when you flew that you had your checklist. This is what I'm supposed to do, which in some ways, can make you more nervous because then you're worried that you're going to miss something on your checklist at, before you jump out. But on the bobsled, I, I, I kind of looked at the guys like, are you sure that I'm ready to do this now? Because yeah, I, I got into it on the, you know, it was a flat piece of ice at the, at the finish. And they say, okay, well just keep your knuckles together and you really don't want to steer too much. You don't want your knuckles. To, you want your knuckles to be mostly together. You don't want to steer too much off of that. You're not, yanking the yanking it one way or the other and I'm like okay okay that sounds that sounds reasonable that sounds like something I can remember and we walked the course that was awesome yeah and, and looked at it and like okay well turn 13 you want to make sure that you're getting off of turn 13 quickly I remember so you, none of that. as soon as we hit the ice like that, that, I remembered none of that uh I was just go you know um but uh, maybe it's because my, my brain is a little, little different or something but it was all like one morph it was just like smooth survival <laughs> it was complete survival. Yeah, I was thinking, do I need to remember this? If I don't come off that early, am I in trouble? And 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 so they drove me up. And I felt like, you know, I had invited you and Blake to come join us. And I felt like, well, I should really go first. You know, this is this is my job. This is this is me being the leader leading. in some ways. Yeah, you know, yeah. I am leading. I, I can't say, hey, you know, Jack, why don't you why don't you go up and do that? And and uh, and so I thought, okay, well. And I need to, I need to look like I'm confident in this, even though, good. yeah, it was good. Even yeah. though I'm going crazy. I talked to Blake and she said, Oh no, you didn't look scared at all. I was like, I was petrified. Yeah. I had no yeah, idea. That's crazy. And then I remember you telling you after I was done, I finished and I was like, yes, I'm done. I don't have to do this again. And then somebody had to leave because you have to have another person in there with you for a wait. Um, I, they just sit there. They don't do anything. They just sit there. And then Blake was like you and Blake can go together I was like oh, man I gotta go twice more and I'm not in control this time oh that was awful but I did I can't say no you know I'm like oh, I would have liked to have said no but I, I know I know we didn't put you in a great position there you, yeah, no, we knew that you couldn't say no and we needed somebody else and you were the brakeman and the and it's actually worse it, as the brakeman it's kind of like being yeah, in the backseat of the bus because you're not actually doing anything you're not braking as you go down it's only at the end it's like after you've crossed the finish line, now you break. So it's being a brakeman is not, there's no skill involved. It's just, oh, after this is over, then I stop it. Like that's it. It's not like you're breaking into a turn, coming out of the turn. No, it's just, you're just hurtling down this thing. And uh, you put you your head down. Yeah. Keep your head down. That's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. It was, that was, that was one of the coolest things that I've done just because, because in some ways it's, it's like, you don't feel like you really have permission to do that. You're like, Hey, can we, can we do this? Can we drive yeah, it? Right. 
and, and sort of you're behind the, you're past the velvet ropes there and, and to be able to do, but also that, that it happened in one day. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> and thank goodness we got it in. Cause I think that was the last day they did anything. They shut it all down. After it that. Shut, yeah. Shut down completely, shut down completely. And I went to the supermarket afterwards because I was, I was leaving and coming, coming up to our little cabin afterwards. Cause my wife was up here and, and I went to the supermarket and there were, there, there were aisles that were completely empty. I mean, there was not a, there was not a shred of toilet paper <laughs> in the whole place, but it was yeah. also like the produce. There was, there was, there were produce parts where there were just, it, and, and I couldn't, it, it, right now we've approached a time that is so different than anything that I've ever experienced in my life. Like I've, I can't remember shortages. I remember the gas shortages, I guess, back when we were back in the seventies when we waited in line to go to the gas gas station. But short of that, I, I can't think of anything else where, where we were really in this kind of a situation. Yeah, not as a country, but like there's been flashpoints like uh, like Katrina or something like that. Natural disasters sure. are regional, right. but not certainly not as a country as a whole. As the countries, I, I, yeah, that's exactly it. So, 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 does doing something like that, does doing something like the bobsled, is this, is this adding to your list of adventures, your list, your bucket list of like, okay, checking the bobsled off, what that's might be yeah, that next? Awesome. You, I'm not doing that again. You're not doing uh, that again? Okay. I don't think so. I think that was good. Uh, but it was awesome. I was so glad I did it. I wanted to do it. So, yeah, that's, uh, that was on there. But yeah, bucket list things, you don't look at things in terms of bucket list, there's just always, so many things I want to want to do and I want to take my family down the Grand Colorado river through the grand Canyon. I've, I've done that. My wife and I did half together. I did another half with my dad. Um, I want to take uh, the kids down there uh, as soon as they're old enough uh, to escape. Cause we can escape the phones. We can escape the iPads, the electronic leash when you're in the bottom of these river canyons. So uh, we like to do that. So there's a few, few rivers like that, that I want to uh, want to explore and, uh, and places that I, that I want to go and things like that. But uh for uh, yeah, for right now, it's uh, it's all about this uh, this next book, making that as good as it can possibly be, and then transitioning into to book five, and um, yeah, it's 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 a busy time. Does the book get more challenging now that you've been on the New York Times bestseller list? I mean, it's kind of like the first two. You're thinking, hey, you know, I'll see if I can do it. You know, I want to be here, and then now you've made it. Yeah, now you have to kind of make it every time going forward now. Um, and it's a lot of work to get on there. Um, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, so I guess there is a little more pressure. I try not to really think about that. But the first three got such great uh, reviews overall that uh, you know people expect them to continue to get better each and every every time. Um, that's my goal, of course, to move the genre forward, even if it's just by degree each and every time. But uh, you know, maybe there comes a time when that doesn't happen, um, and then you get knocked down. You got to get back up and make the next one. Got to come back uh, even better. But I'm not not quite there yet. But uh, but yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I think it would get harder as I go on, but I'm not positive. I don't know. We'll, see. well I'm actually we'll asking more in terms of the art part of it, right? That, that it's kind of like, like in some ways you're knocking on the door and, and you get in and how do you continue to grow as an artist? I mean, does that get to be one of the challenges of like, okay, okay, I've done this, this works, this is part of who I am, but I want to add something new or I always think uh, Neil Young, Neil Young always talked about like uh, head for the ditch, mm. you know, and it's like, okay, it's working. This, this is a hit song and then head for the ditch kind of thing. You know, is, is, is there a part of that as an artist that you're like, you're like, okay, 
what, how do I, how do I get, how do I continue to grow as an artist and not be constrained by my success? Yeah, I think it's um, there's a couple things there, but a lot of times in this, uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot of times, but one could take what was successful in one and just recreate that and change time, place, location, but essentially have the same story um, and just change uh, oh, US. Okay, now it's going to be Europe. Oh, now it's going to be Africa. Now it's going to be China, uh, whatever it may be. But uh, so, so that was very deliberate on my part to have a second novel that was um, different, not just by degree from the first one, but uh, what much more of a geopolitical type thriller uh, that took readers on a journey um, that was surprising because it was a risk to do that, to have a transformative journey for the protagonist. Uh, most people would have just started off the second one, uh, given a little nod to the first one and continued on with the story. But I thought that that would be disingenuous to the reader to have the protagonist just recover so quickly from uh, the traumatic events of the first novel. So definitely took a risk on that second one by going so deep into that character development and that transformative journey, uh, that odyssey almost. Um, so I think I'm gonna continue to, to do that, to do things that uh, take risks that are surprising, that continue to incorporate uh, my personal experience into them, um, because that's, uh, that's valuable, I think, to the reader. But uh, yeah, it's always about trying, I think, to uh, not necessarily recreate, but uh, not, yeah, just not do a carbon copy of something that was successful in the past and just be um, content with that, um, but to continue to, to move forward in a way that's distinguishable from your last effort, I think. How does it work for you? Like I know Stephen King talks about like sort of like the what if moment, you know, like what, what if this happened? It, where, where, does the, where does the spark, what's the genesis for you? In the books or in- In the uh, books, yeah, in the book, like, okay, I'm, I'm committing to a, to a novel, like where, where does it go? How does, how does it start? Yeah, so right now, uh, up until this point, it started with, uh, with an idea, with a theme, with like a one page executive summary, which would be like what you read on the, you know, the back page to draw you in and then expanding that into a, into an outline where then the problem solving comes in. And if I can't figure out the problem, then I just go around it or through it. I don't necessarily let it hold me back because I know that this is, Hey, we're not on the battlefield. We're not being shot at. I have time here. I can take six months with this if I want to figure out this one part and eventually I'll get it. Um, so, uh, so I guess as you go there, that's probably when the what if starts to come in and then even more so when I take that and start actually writing, because then you're really thinking through these ideas and then you're kind of like, Oh, wait a sec, this looked good in the outline, but it's not really working right here. I need to do something else. So it's really just constant uh, problem solving. Uh, I was an aggressive problem solver on the battlefield and I look at the written page the same way. Like it, it's all problem solving uh, for the protagonist, for the bad guys, for the storyline. Um, so it's a lot of the same things you do on the battlefield. Now I do on the written page and I eventually it gets me to the end. So you start with the executive summary. Mm -hmm. That yeah. to me sounds like the hardest part, the executive summary, like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's the challenge oftentimes of like writing about what you've written sometimes is, is it can be the biggest challenge. So, so I look at the executive summary and go, oh man, like that's, that's, that's really hard. That's, mm. that's the one where you look at the page and go, 
oh, I feel really dumb right now. Like, <laughs> don't I know what I'm talking about? So don't you start me. there. I get it. Now, I mean, I've, I've read so many books over my lifetime and so many of these over my lifetime, so many, you know, the inside flaps to things over my lifetime. Um, like, it's, uh, I like that part of it. I like, it's like really? a preview to a movie. You know, it's like a preview, like, oh, man, I want to see that movie. Uh, well, that's the same thing. Okay, now we have that. But now you actually have to have a good movie. Um, like, you can have a great preview, and then you go to the movie, you're like, oh, man, what a letdown. But, you know, so now you got to take that preview, and then you got to make it into an awesome film uh, as well. So it's, uh, uh, okay. yeah, I like it. I like every part of the process. So that's kind of, it's kind of the thing that gets you, that gets you going. It's like, okay, here, here's a great executive summary. Here's the book flap right here. People are going to want to read this. I'd better get to work that's and it. write it. That's it. And you're just catching up in some ways. It's almost like you, you've already started. <laughs> exactly. You, you started with the end. You started with the finished product. <laughs> now you got to get there. Yeah. yeah. This is almost like you're selling the book. You know, here you go. Yeah. There's an executive summary that I didn't want to read. Like then I should probably go and do something else. So maybe that's part of it too. Uh, so that has okay. to be good. Because uh, I could write this whole thing, spend a year on it. And then when I got to this part, uh, I made, eh. no, this has to be good. Like this has to be great. Uh, and that's the lead in. So it's, uh, so that's kind of how it works for me. That's interesting. It's interesting. I mean, it makes sense to me in some ways. I feel like when I was competing, like in downhill, I often talked about that it was for me, it was often the race to the first gate that, that if you can, if you can be committed to the first gate, cause you're going, you know, 70 miles an hour or whatever. And doing this in a mono ski and I'm, I'm sort of a higher level injury. So like when I'm in the air, I don't have the ability to correct. I'm kind of, once I'm in the air, I'm going wherever I'm going, however I'm going, I can't bring the front end up or, or down or whatever. There's no correction whatsoever. So, so I always thought, okay, if I can get to the first gate, then I'm good. Like then, then everything starts to slow down a little bit, but I have to, I have to completely attack it as opposed to, you know, and it's always in, in some ways, it seems like an analogy to, to what you're talking about, write the executive sum, summary, I'm committed. I'm pot committed. Like, do you tell people about that? Do you share anybody? Do you share it with anybody? I have to. I send it to the publisher. That's so it. Okay. They, they start uh, getting things that they're on a schedule. They're a timeline. There's other authors. There's deadlines for them. That sort of thing. So, so they need that early. Uh, in my case. So, um, so yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm committed to it. Like, I can't change it. You know, maybe a little bit here and there. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I'm pretty committed once that thing's out there. Yeah, you give them a manuscript and they go. Uh, what is this? Yeah, this, exactly. The, yeah. This doesn't match what we just sent out to all the booksellers. So yeah, no, you gotta, it's gotta be on point. We have a problem. Wow. That's cool. Well, so the third one, I have not read the third one yet. So the third one is Savage Son and, and this yeah. is where he's coming back from brain surgery. That's right. Right. That's the beginning of it. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm excited. So, so this is going to be great. And, and so plans for the future are writing the fourth one. Does the fourth one have a name yet? It does, but it's top secret. Top secret. Okay. Well, hey, hey, this is this is part of your job, so I'm not going to try to get that out of you. Uh, so, what what else? Any any other plans for the summer? Or I mean, it's it's a little up in the air, isn't it? It's it's up in the air because the kids' summer plans are all canceled. So it's a it's a mad dash to to figure all that out. But uh, yeah, it's writing book four. Uh, you're continually promoting the first 
three. Um, you're staying engaged in, in social media by offering something of value throughout the year. So you're not just holding up a book when it's time to buy it, but, uh, but you're growing that audience, growing that, uh, that readership throughout the entire year um, to continue to you know, move the whole entire brand company forward essentially. So there's that. And then I'm the executive producer of the series with Chris Pratt on Amazon. So, uh, and I advise on the scripts. So it was me and the showrunner screenwriter for the pilot episode. And it's awesome. I, I am so fired up about it. I love it. And now after, since they've sold that to Amazon, now there's a writer's room. So there's like eight people. <laughs> now it's virtual via Zoom and right. writer's room every day. And uh, they get in contact with me to ask questions. And then once those scripts are done, they'll send them to me and I'll get the red pen out and go through it and send it back. And uh, we'll work together and get those all, all done. So there'll be eight to 10 episodes and hopefully start filming in, um, I don't know, late 2020, early 2021. You said red pen. Does that mean, do you get final say in what happens or how does that work? final say yeah chris has final, chris say. Has final say okay um so i have to uh put my input so that by the time it gets to him it's uh it, it's closer to his vision of keeping it uh gritty and authentic and visceral and primal so um yeah it's a it's a really cool thing to be involved with I would imagine that that's exciting to, to see your words become become images on the screen as yeah, well exactly. It's crazy. I'm not like talking about it too much. I don't want to jinx it because it's, uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's, uh, it, it'll be, yeah. I don't even know how, how it's going to be when it comes out. Cause right now I'm focused on book four, but, uh, I love the direction they're taking it. Uh, of course it can derail at any point during the process, uh, I guess, but, uh, so I'm just kind of keeping my expectations low, but at the same time, it's cool to be involved and uh, be a part of making this as good as it can possibly be. Being a one-man shop to a certain, I mean, you're not a one-man shop, but, but being involved in so much of the startup business that you said, what do you love and what do you dread? I love that I don't uh, have a boss. Um, okay. I don't have, I'm not working for someone else. Um, I control my schedule. Uh, how much work I put in is uh, you know, directly proportional to how much I grow this foundation for the future. Um, so I could have sat back and done nothing and have a much smaller readership than I do now. Um, the other part of that is the, is the dread of knowing that I'm all in on this all the time and there is no break and it is all up to me. So it's the, it's the double edge of it, but um, I much prefer not having to go and not have to deal. There's no office politics. There's no, uh, there's no me working for some, you know, somebody I don't like. Um, there, there's none of that. It's freedom. And uh, that's, that's what I was after in my post-military life was uh, freedom financially and uh, freedom to control my schedule, freedom to be able to say yes and no to things. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of what, uh, you know, what I created, which I, I mean, I feel very fortunate uh, to be in that position. But, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's what I love about it. There's no, it's all up to me. What time I get up, what time I start writing, you know, who I, uh, who I talk to, who I jump on a podcast with, uh, there's nobody else that, uh, that controls that, but me. Um, and there's no one holding me back. That's it. That's probably it right there. There's no one holding me back. I'm not in a job like, Oh, if only I wasn't in this chair, if only I didn't have to be sitting at this desk right now working for, you know, whatever company, uh, then I could write. There's none of that. Um, I can write because that's what I do. Uh, so yeah, so it's freedom. That's awesome. It's freedom, but there is no coast. You don't get to, 
There's, there's no coasting. You, you have to, you're responsible. Four o'clock, I'm out. See you guys later. I'm not going to think about this job until 9.30 tomorrow morning. Like, nope. It's constant. It's 100% all day, every day. There's not a second. I'm not thinking about this, uh, either the, the writing side or the business side. Um, there's never, my mind will not let me take a break. Um, so that's, uh, I don't know. That's- is that a good thing or is that something that, that in the future you'd like to give yourself a little bit of time or do you do anything? Do you do any meditation? Do you any, any of that kind of stuff to, or work out in a lot of ways? It sounds like you've got I prioritized some- a lot ahead of uh, those other things uh, in order to build this. So uh, I've realized I only have so much bandwidth and I'm going to have to allocate resources and I could be in great shape right now and have a, and okay, third novel. <laughs> so, so you gotta, gotta make choices along the way there. So, uh, I'm not in that great shape right now and the novel's, uh, crushing. So, I, <laughs> so, you know, you just gotta kind of figure that and for everybody, it's going to be different, but no, the answer is at some point I would like to have some breathing room and that's why all this work is going in now to build that foundation. Um, so that, uh, that in the future, all you have even more options and opportunities and all of even more options with which to say, you know what? I'm just going to turn off for a little bit right here. Or, you know, what? I'm going to try to get up in each morning and do my meditation and do my journaling and then do my stretching and then do my workout, hang upside down for a few minutes, have my tea. Like, okay, now it's noon, right? And I have not written a thing. <laughs> I'm doing that right now. So it's, uh, so right now priority is, uh, is writing and, and building this. Right. But it also sounds like given, given who you are, that you want to put the work in so that you know what is, important and how something needs to be done so that then if you can allocate if you can if you can you know give give a particular job off to somebody else that frees up some time that you know and know what the expectations are and can work with them in an educated way oh yeah all about being most uh, effective making the most effective and efficient use of your time because that's our most uh, our most valuable commodity and uh so it's always about doing that but in order to, to get there, like right now, it's uh, solely focused on, and I, I feel like there's a transition. I feel like I'm in this transition phase right now where I've been at this full on sprint since I got out of the military uh, to, to build this. And now I'm at this stage where I can, okay, it's time for a shift. There's been a discernible change since uh, the New York Times list, since the, the Amazon announcement, since the Joe Rogan podcast um, in that, okay, there's a bit of a foundation here now. There, there's there's some solid found. There's a solid foundation. Uh, now I think this summer is a time to really think through how to shift to make more effective and efficient use of my time. So I'm right there on the precipice of that right now. I think. Awesome. Well, good luck with that. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us on the bobsled as well too. That was, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Let's not do it again. We'll just skip right to the beers part at the end. That sounds like a great idea. Well, thank you so much and good luck. Good luck with the writing. Good luck with, uh, with, with the business really. Okay. I mean, that's a big part of it. And, and it. thank Hopefully you. And I get together soon. Yes. I look forward to that. I definitely look forward to that as we, uh, yeah, as we emerge. Yes. Yes. Uh, fingers crossed. Uh, it really care. is. So out there. all right.